Welcome to Democratically 2020, the podcast all about the politics, policies, and personalities of the 2020 US election. I'm your host, Karen Robinson. Before we get into the thrust of this week's episode, I just want to take a moment to acknowledge that today is September 11th, uh, a date where 19 years ago today, I think we discovered or uh, were newly awakened to the fact that America was vulnerable to enemies from outside the country. Um, And that obviously changed our politics and changed our thinking. Um, I think we're in a place now where we're suddenly realizing that America is vulnerable to enemies inside the country as well. Um, And so to all those of you who are thinking about relatives that you've loved and lost, um, I'm thinking of you today. So I am delighted today to welcome uh, Roger King, who is the host and creator of uh, the uh, Content Warning Clusterfucked podcast, um, a podcast which explores themes around the unfortunate demographic clustering of America um, from a political point of view. Um, and it's just a really fascinating podcast. I really encourage all of you to check it out. Um, Roger is a, a Canada-based um, Democrat abroad like myself. Welcome to the podcast, Roger. Great to be here, Karen. Thanks for having me. No, it's an absolute delight. So um, we'll I am fascinated. Again. Sorry? <laughs> I said, we'll see if you're saying it's an absolute delight by the end of it. (laughs) (laughs) So I am just fascinated by the premise behind your podcast, because what you say you're doing is you're talking, you're talking to red state people. So it could be Democrats or it could be Republicans, um, but about what's going on in red states. Um, So talk to me about the kind of the premise behind your podcast and, and, and how it came to be. Sure. Well, you know, the tagline I use for it is it's a liberal host, but with red state guests. And um, I will say I I don't, you know, I don't stick to it 100 percent. It's not that literally every guest is in a red state, Um, but there's some most of them are. And there's some connection to a red state because, yeah, I I mean, as the title implies, um, I, you know, I started thinking about liberal clustering and how how, you know, obviously a candidate can get three million more votes and still lose an election. And, you know, in general, the Democrats tend to get more votes, even in Senate. If you add up the Senate races, of course, we don't have uh, every Senate seat isn't up every every cycle. But, uh, you know, they get more votes for the House and all that. And that's because they're clustered in the big cities and not spread out far enough across the country to win more elections, given the U.S. system. And um, so I read this article a few years ago in The New York Times. It was called uh, Go Midwest, Young Hipster. (laughs) <laughs> uh, and, and the premise simply was that the Democrats could do a lot better if uh, liberals, if Democrats were willing to live in more places, you know, besides just New York, Chicago, you know, L.A., Miami, whatever. Um, and I started thinking about it and I thought, yeah, you know, this is this is the issue. So I came up with this idea that we should have a new liberal movement that's literal, like liberals should literally start moving. Uh, you know, if they can afford to, or, you know, uh, if, if, if they, if, whatever, you know, way they can, if, if, uh, if they can, they should do it. Um, sort of tongue in cheek. Um, but I, I thought this is how we're going to end the clustering is if we could get, uh, some liberals to move to some of these smaller red states in particular. Um, but it turns out that demographically, some of it's already going on with, uh, Texas and some of the Southern states, uh, liberals are moving in more often. And now we have this pandemic 
where uh, people are thinking twice, at least some of them are, about living in big cities and, you know, maybe getting to a little more wide open space. So, uh, you know, I feel like the new liberal movement could be happening. But anyway, I decided to start the podcast to encourage um, Democrats, fellow Democrats, to think of uh, the literal movement, of course, uh, to, to stop the clustering, but also the figurative clustering where we're only talking to people who agree with us and, you know, in our own bubbles and all of that, which has been a common theme that people have talked about. So, I thought the podcast would be a good way to explore, hey, how can we persuade people who don't already agree with us? If we're going to win elections in some of these other places and red states, we're going to need to persuade some Republican voters. There's often more Republicans registered than Democrats. And um, I thought, let's 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 do a podcast on this angle. Let's talk to people about how we can uh, persuade more people in the red states and, and start winning more elections. So I think that's really fascinating, especially because the two types of clustering that you talk about there, geographic clustering, I guess we could call it, and, and almost like ideological clustering, they're so closely related with each other that, you know, we don't live cheek by jowl with people um, who are ideologically different from us as much as we used to. Um, and that shows up, especially in kind of, there's a big national move towards urbanization, right, where more and more people are living in city centers, which is one of the reasons why we have the electoral college problem that we have, because there are a lot more Democrats living in dense urban areas. But it's not just a blue state, red state divide, isn't it? I mean, part of it is is about within states that you've got people kind of clustering in more liberal neighborhoods in more density um, and rural states are becoming more and more, so rural regions of of states of any color are becoming more and more red. So, um, I mean, how do you see that playing out over the long term? Do you think that will, that, that aspect of it will continue? Well, it, it, yeah, it's, I mean, how many election nights have we all stayed up as Democrats and just waited for those big city returns to come in? Like if it's Wisconsin, hey, are the numbers in from Milwaukee and Madison? Milwaukee. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> or my home state of Michigan has Detroit counted all its votes. Um, so, yeah, there's the divide um, within states. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I, um, well, it's interesting. Again, I mentioned the pandemic. I read a, a piece recently about Wisconsin and how a bunch of people from Madison were now uh, buying homes in other parts of Wisconsin just to get a bit more space. Not that Madison is the most crowded city in the world, but uh, just that they want to spread out. They can, you know, we've got, even before the pandemic, we had about 40% of the work population uh, working from home, working remotely at least some of the time. So that's part of what I said about the new liberal movement. You, you know, depending on what you do for a living, you can do it from anywhere if you're in certain professions. And so if people want to have more political impact, uh, they could think about uh, relocating to somewhere where they have more space and where they might have more of an influence. Um, but I, I do, I think there are some serious demographic things happening uh, that will favor the Democrats, almost in some cases, almost unintentionally, like you have housing prices in San Francisco being so, you know, uh, expensive that you've got people that are now moving out into other districts. And um, so it it may end up benefiting the Democrats, uh, even though they're largely, you know, quote unquote, democratic cities that have become too expensive. Um, yeah. So I think some of that's going to happen. I do think the pandemic um, has is going to result in a trend of some people leaving the big cities um, for, you know, safety reasons and um, just to get more space and have a little bit more of a, different kind of lifestyle. Um, so we'll, we'll see how it all shakes out. 
I mean, it's an interesting regional phenomenon, too. I mean, you alluded a few minutes ago to the fact that in some states we're already seeing some of this, i.e. the demographics of Texas, for example, are changing. And that's not just because of a changing kind of views of the people who live there, but also that different people are moving in, right? People are moving to Texas from other parts of the country. Florida is a state that's constantly in flux and will probably be 50-50 forever, but it has a constantly changing demographic. Um, but the South has changed a lot. Uh, Georgia, North Carolina, South Carolina, Virginia, all these states which are kind of hardcore Southern states demographically are, are moving more and more democratic. And it seems like part of the reason for that is people from the North moving South and bringing their kind of Northern sensibilities and politics with them. Um, but then you've got the Midwest and some would say the Midwest is going in the opposite direction. Yeah, I mean, I... I um... I think it, it's hard to see. I mean, we'll really get a sense of it, obviously, in November, uh, whether the uh, the three key states in the Rust Belt that Trump flipped, uh, Michigan, Wisconsin, and Pennsylvania, come back in the Democratic fold. Um, I mean, you've got some demographic stuff going on there related to working class voters, and there's more of them in, uh, in those states. Uh, and obviously, Trump's base is, is non-college educated, um, white kind of working class. Uh, again, you can sort of, you saw in the midterms, if a district or a state was more college educated, it was more likely to flip to the Democrats. So there's that, that whole thing going on as well. Um, so I'm, I'm not sure, you know, where it'll all shake out with those particular states. They do, it did seem to me, uh, and we don't, I don't think we necessarily want to spend much time relitigating 2016, but it did seem to me there was a bit of a, you know, a complacency and the sleep at the wheel kind of thing happening. Um, not necessarily, I know Clinton's campaign gets a lot of criticism, but just in general, I think people were not really taking it seriously that Trump could win. And now they've woken up, as we've seen from turnout at special elections, the turnout in the midterms, the turnout in the Democratic primaries, all of it pointing to, Dem- you know, when Democrats show up, we tend to win elections. So, yeah. I, you know, in 2018, those states, we just talked about the Democrats kind of ran the table with whatever Senate and, and gubernatorial races were there. So I feel like they're probably going to move back into um, the Democratic column, and then we'll have to see how it aligns up from there. Yeah. So, Roger, I think I think uh, I, I I love the idea of Democrats just packing up and moving entirely to some beautiful states with a lot more space yeah. and, and, and perhaps a more politically swingy demographic. Um, realistically, I think it's hard to imagine that that as a political movement will be able to have any kind of big impact. Some people might say, why not do it the other way around? Why not reform the system uh, so that the politics that we have are not based on these kinds of geographic inequalities? I mean, it's not a fairly structured system as it is. Do you see any hope for fixing not just the Electoral College, but inequities in Congress and the Senate? Do you see any route forward for doing that without forcing people to leave their homes in a great migration? (laughs) Well, that obviously in a perfect world would be the better solution. But I I was uh, not being very optimistic about that happening, particularly the Electoral College. I mean, we're talking about, you know, constitutional amendment and Republicans will never go along with it. And um, I, I don't think that I mean, there are different movements afoot uh, to, yeah, and I mean, you know, I don't, I'm one that I'm fine with abolishing the Electoral College, um, and it's a whole fascinating discussion about what would happen if we did move to a popular vote system, and, uh, you know, those opposed to it always 
say things like, oh, California and New York would decide all elections. But actually, I think it would be quite fascinating. Uh, they all These people that say that forget that Texas is actually the second largest state, so it's a Republican state. Yeah. Um, and Florida is just as large as New York, and it's right now a red state. So there's a balance there in terms of the most populated states. But yeah. someone was just joking on Twitter last night, oh, heaven forbid we have presidential candidates who actually pay attention to where most people live, you know. Uh, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like... California deciding elections would happen because a lot of people live in California. <laughs> exactly. And by the way, a lot of Republicans live in California. I mean, the Republicans like to talk about California as if it's just, you know, one thing, you know, one big block of Democratic votes. But in all of in all red states, there are a lot of Democrats and in all blue states, there are a lot of Republicans. Well, exactly. Uh, you know, there's more Trump votes in California than in, in other states that he actually won. Um, and if, if every vote counted equally, you, you would have interesting campaign strategies like, yeah. you know, a Republican might spend a lot of time in Texas, Louisiana, Oklahoma and, and that region. If you add up all the votes that are there, it's, it's larger than California. Um, I think a lot more states would get some attention and there'd be just yeah. interesting strategies uh, the way you see during primaries where uh, certain candidates, you know, Obama, um, when he ran for the first time in 2008, he, one of their great strategies was to go to some of these neglected states that no yeah. one ever went to, like Idaho and, um, you know, some of the mountain west states and just run up the numbers there. So, there, I mean, there could be any number of strategies, but I really do think more states would get a lot of attention. Um, but, you know, I mean, in terms of my sort of tongue in cheek, new liberal movement thing, back to your, your question, um, I mean, when I have some of the guests I have on, uh, from some of these states, like I had the chair of the Democratic Party in Wyoming. And it's just interesting to hear because you see the percentages and you see, you know, uh, a race in Wyoming, whether it's Senate or presidential. And the Republican gets, you know, 65 percent and the Democrat gets 30, 35, whatever. And you think, oh, those are insurmountable numbers. We can't, you know. And But when you look at the number of voters we're talking about, I mean, the population of Wyoming is just over half a million. So we're talking you know, maybe like he said, 100,000 is kind of the win number in Wyoming. You can win a Senate race if you get just a little over 100,000 votes. So the number of people who, who you have to persuade to either switch sides or get up off the couch isn't um, astronomical here. And so, you know, it's, it, it gets back to this whole thing of what Howard Dean put in years ago, the 50 state strategy. It's about Democrats uh, showing up in some of these states um, getting a, a good grassroots uh, organizing uh, team happening, competing everywhere. And that's kind of the, you know, the premise of the, of the podcast and what issues might win over some Republican voters. And there are some, you know, consistent stuff that um, that, you know, are kind of bipartisan, whether it's um, you know protecting the environment, uh, you know, in the case of some of these smaller red states like Wyoming, they care very much about the land and maintaining it and all of that. And of course, you know, healthcare is a huge thing that crosses over, uh, stuff like rural broadband, um, Democrats should be running with this. So anyway, it, it's it's interesting uh, to think about these red states and how we, we might win more often on, on certain issues. Mm -hmm. I think it's really interesting, and I'd love to talk more about the the kind of issues that you feel resonate with with red state voters. But I'm curious, my perception of American politics in recent years, and tell me if you disagree with this, has been that policy matters less and less, and actually it feels like it's much more about identity, that there's a sort of us against them um, 
dynamic that we sink into and that, you know, and, and you know, Rich, Rachel Bittacoffer, who I know you've also had on your podcast, you know, she yeah. talks a lot about that negative partisanship, but it manifests us in so many aspects of our lives. And I'm just curious if you've unlocked any tips or tricks to talking to red state voters in a way that kind of de-escalates some of that identity and actually allow us to have a more a more fruitful conversation. Well, that's definitely something I explore on the podcast. Obviously, it, it would be hard to disagree with that assessment that you just gave. And, and you know, it is it's really become Yankees versus Red Sox in a lot of ways. And damn um, Yankees. Yeah. <laughs> nice. Uh, says the Massachusetts woman. Um, <laughs> the, uh, uh, it's um, yeah. And, and everything is nationalized, although. Uh, you know, I do when I have some of these guests on, I, I we do still come back to the all politics is local and you can get some traction. I mean, it's a little tough when Trump is just dominating everything. But, it, you know, in normal times, you can get some traction on some of these these issues. But I do think it starts with um, being civil, if at all possible. Uh, it's I know it's difficult even. I mean, I have my Twitter handle is the civil liberal because I I'm trying to like uh, have dialogue with people and even debate without the name calling, without, you know, the trash talking and all of that. I think it starts with that. You're never going to persuade anybody by calling them names as much as you might be angry with them or um, kind of, you know, uh, hate some of the things they're saying. And uh, but, you know, again, we've we've seen time and time again where um, red state voters, a lot of them have never had a Democrat ask for their vote. I've heard that said many times by some of the people I've had on who run grassroots organizations and everything. Um, and, you know, I think one of my favorite episodes was with uh, Jane Klebb, who's the uh, chair of the Democratic uh, Nebraska Democratic Party. She was the one who organized the protests against the Keystone Pipeline. Mm-hmm. Um, and when she started out in Nebraska, and, you know, this is going out and trying to convince rural voters they should care about this. Um, she, I think it was 30% in Nebraska did not approve the pipeline. By the time she was done, 65% of Nebraskans were on her side. And she went out and, you know, talked to the ranchers and talked to the locals and said, look, this is going to affect us. This is possibly, you know, uh, going to affect your livelihood. Made it, well, it was local because the pipeline was literally going through Nebraska. But um, she got these rural people on their side because it was something that related to them. But the first part was having a conversation, was showing up, was... Um, you know, taking people at um, in good faith, you know, not assuming because they're Republican that they oh they must be racist or they must want people to die because they don't they don't have health care. You know, these sorts of caricature arguments that we hear on the left sometimes. I think it starts with the mindset of having a civil conversation, assuming uh, taking people in good faith until they prove otherwise, and addressing what they're actually saying about certain issues, um, and having that conversation. Yeah, it's it's honestly a habit we've fallen out of, haven't we? As a as a citizenry, as a population on both sides, mm-hmm. um, it's just really it, you know it's really hard to have that conversation, and and it's really hard to not feel triggered every time somebody says something that you know might be offensive to you. Um, but you know you you just can't get past it to the to the next point in the conversation. It's really interesting, especially. I'm curious if you have any thoughts about the sort of polarization of the media environment around that, because one of the things that, I mean, I talk to my dad a lot about this. My dad's a former Republican, you know, he's a, just dis- dislikes Trump in t- 
intensely, but he still gets all these emails from his, you know, friends and colleagues and people he knows, um, just spreading rampant misinformation, but also just like strange information, right? And and he'll call me up. Is this true? Is that true? And I, I always just think, well, I don't know what to do when I'm starting with information that's not based on anything. And it feels like to just say that's completely a lie, that's completely based on nothing over and over again, even when that's the case, it feels like I'm dismissing his questions. So it's hard to know how to even start with a conversation like that. Well, you're right. I mean, you know, this is obviously the biggest problem in our society at the moment is that misinformation, some of it done obviously maliciously and deliberately, and some of it um, just people not being critical thinkers. I mean, we see that the anti-vax movement and other things, um, it's it's tough to fight it against, especially when it's coming from, you know, you've like the anti-vax movement now, it's sort of, you, you've got that, uh, the approach to the pandemic, you've got the anti-face masks crowd in there. It's sort of a convergence of the left and the right um both kind of spreading the same sort of um you know government isn't going to force me to have a vaccine which fits perfectly into the narrative that we've heard on the right for for years about government you know controlling our lives and all that stuff so yeah it, it is it is a difficult when you do encounter someone who doesn't just have a difference of opinion you know maybe they're pro-life and you're pro-choice that that's you can have a dialogue at least whereas you're right if someone is is starting from the point of just believing in nonsense it's hard to um, and of course, we have to all decide individually whether it's worth our energy to, you know, spend much time with a 911 truther, you know, trying to. Uh, but I, you know, I, I've had little breakthroughs, even, you know, with Trump supporters online where just, uh, you know, if it's something that you can easily prove is wrong. Now, the, the, one of the bigger problems now is finding a source that both sides will find credible. And yeah. we're running out of those. And that, that's the most alarming part to me. We, we're losing the referees because uh, if you send them something from the New York Times or the Washington Post or CNN or whatever, oh, no, fake news. Uh, and of course, on their side, if they send us something from Breitbart or, you know, one of those outlets, Daily Caller, we're going to or Fox News, we're going to shoot it down, too. So there's this what's, you know, what is a, a, a neutral source? But, you know, for example, I just a small thing that occurs to me. I encountered a lot of Trump supporters who say, you know, the media um, never uh, thought Trump would win. None of the polls I'm talking about in the, in the Republican primaries, none of the yeah. polls said he was going to win. I, I a couple of times I've had this experience. Where I said, no, actually, Trump was leading in the polls almost from the moment he came yeah. down the escalator uh, for the nomination and they refused to believe it. So I just send them the, the real clear politics polling thing yeah. that show. And they go, oh, you know what? Actually, I was wrong about that. So it's a small thing. It's not, you know, but if, you, if there's something that you can easily correct mm. um, and it's a, at least a somewhat legitimate source, and there still are a few that people will uh, more or less agree on, um, you you can have that dialogue. But again, it, I think it starts with the, you know, you know, not saying, hey, you're an idiot. Uh, <laughs> that's not going to get anywhere. Uh, but again, like I said, you have to pick and choose your how much energy you want to dedicate to this. But I, I start with people who you can tell are rational and may just have a difference of opinion and try to have a dialogue from there. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, speaking of the media, uh, big election-related stories in the media this week that I thought it might be worth us just having a little... Um, yep. One of which was there was a major story that broke, um, I think it was NBC News, um, which uh, broke a story. No, sorry, it was the New York Times, as 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 alluded to, the, the liberal New York Times. All fake um, news. All fake news. 
They broke a really interesting story about Trump's uh, cash problems. Now, Donald Trump has been, he declared for re-election the day after his inauguration. So he's been running for re-election and fundraising um, for the longest time of any presidential campaign in history, um, Mm -hmm. certainly for a sitting president. And so I think we all worked on the assumption that he would work with a major cash advantage. But this New York Times story indicated that actually his cash on hand is, is nowhere what it should be. And there seem to be a lot of reasons for that, some of which is there's a suggestion that a lot of the... Um, Brad Parscale sent a lot of money through shell companies directly back into various Trump family accounts. Laura Trump, for example, was getting a lot of money through these shell companies that they did things like buying a Super Bowl ad, which didn't seem very effective, but made Trump happy. Um, So there might be a a kind of combination of corruption and just incompetence. Um, And of course, he hasn't announced his August fundraising number. So what do you think about all this, Roger? Do you think it's Trump really has a a cash cash crisis? Well, I I was skeptical of it at first. Um, You know, not that the idea of Trump burning through cash or or grifting or whatever, would would it all be a shock? Um, But just that, yeah, like you said, they were raising tons of money. And obviously, Trump and the Republicans never have any trouble raising money. So I was skeptical. But then, yeah, once I read the piece and there was something else in Politico as well, I think along the same lines um, that uh, Axios, uh, you know, the more uh, newer news source, um, they tend to have a lot of access to Republicans in the Trump campaign. And they were also reporting it. So I was like, okay, well, maybe there is some truth to this. And um, uh, you know, it, it it does seem, as you suggested, a combination of um, some stuff done for ego, satisfying Trump reasons, whether it's the Super Bowl commercial or I read that they spent a whole bunch of money on ads in the D.C. market, which, of course, you know, the D.C. electoral votes are going to be won easily by Biden. And, yeah. and so there's no there's nothing you get out of that. And um, as you well know, uh, there's no uh, Senate <laughs> in, in, uh, to be had. Believe me, I would love for people to start paying more attention to D.C. voters, but uh, being one of them myself, but we don't count. <laughs> exactly. Well, whatever the hundreds of thousands they spend on commercials appear to be for an audience of one, as, as they say. Um, so it's yeah. some combination of things. But, um, you know, I... Uh, I can't imagine that uh, they would have any issue raising money. I have imagined, you know, Trump Nation, his followers, uh, despite him being a billionaire. And of, of course, apparently, you know, according to him, he could, you know, give money to his camp anytime they want. Um, I think a lot of these people who follow him and support him are, would certainly be willing to give money. So I'm sure they're really pushing for the fundraising, um, whether they uh, know how to spend it wisely or not. I mean, th- this is a whole separate topic, perhaps, but I, I tend to think um, money in politics is slightly overrated. Um, mm-hmm. You do need, obviously, a certain amount of money to compete and get your message out. I'm not saying otherwise. Uh, but after it gets to a certain point, I mean, both, you know, Trump and Biden are going to raise a billion dollars or more. And at some point, it's just, you know, overkill, just tons of ads and spending money. And uh, I, I don't think it matters as much as people think. And you, no, no, no amount of money is going to make Trump into something he's not, you know, and and as we saw with Mr. Bloomberg, you can have a lot of money, but if you don't have a compelling message or a compelling candidate, it's not going to matter. So uh, I I would imagine Trump and the Republicans will have enough money to do what they need to do. Um, There's other reports about where they're spending the money. In addition to what you covered uh, when you asked the question, they're also um, 
spending supposedly more money on social media and YouTube and that sort of thing rather than traditional TV advertising. There's a whole debate about how much TV advertising works anymore and all of that. So I don't know how it's all going to shake out. I, I think they did report um, their August fundraising. I think I saw something last night and it was way less than than the Biden campaign um, raised. So I think in the end, Biden probably will have more money, but so did Hillary. You know, so again, like I say, I think in, they're all both going to have enough money to compete. Yeah, I think I think those are all points really well taken. And I think your point about how much does it really matter money at this point when I mean, not that money doesn't matter at all, but if everybody just has a lot of money and, and fundamentally nobody in this race is going to be very constrained in what they spend. Um, I mean, the Biden campaign certainly raised a record, an extraordinary three hundred and eighty four million dollars last month alone. Um, right. So. It isn't like they're having to make hard, you know, parsimonious choices about where they put a, a little bit of money. I do think money is interesting in two ways. One, especially in this race. One, I think money is interesting as a as a marker of intensity. Um, there's been a lot of narrative that Trump has more intensity on his side, and I I've. I've long been suspicious that that's not the case, that actually there is more intensity against Trump than there is against Biden. Right. And it might be intensity against that matters more. And, and perhaps Biden's relative fundraising success bears that out. But the second one that's just interesting to me is I always think the best place to spend money in a campaign is often not on TV advertising or indeed social media, but on building out a really strong grassroots movement, um, you know, paying staffers on the ground, people who can knock on doors, um, you know, getting that local organization, as we talked about. Um, but we have the kind of election where that's not even possible. <laughs> I mean, none of that's a lot of that just isn't going to happen this year. So I'm curious, you know, how we will replicate um, the effect of a grassroots campaign in, 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 in COVID circumstances. Yeah, I, I, it's, it's, uh, it's been interesting just to see in general, um, you know, at, the, at this time of the campaign, normally we're looking at where the candidates are each day, each week. Mm -hmm. uh, I always find that sort of fascinating, which states they're going to. That, that kind of gives you an idea of what maybe their internal polling is showing. If you see one candidate making three appearances in one week in a certain state and um, you go, OK, well, obviously they're seeing they're seeing something in the numbers where they but now, you know, with the pandemic, Biden's been very cautious. He and he and Kamala are finally starting to step out a little bit and go to a few little uh, social distance events and that sort of thing. I don't know yet where they're going to spend the money. Obviously, social media is, a, as we just talked about, it's a huge, um, you know, place to find voters. Uh, again, there's some debate about how effective the ads can be when people are just being bombarded. Um, so I think we're in kind of a transition period about how money is used, uh, never mind the pandemic angle to it. Just in general, uh, the pandemic just adds another layer to it. Um, but, you know, ultimately, we've got two candidates who everyone knows they're what 100 percent name recognition and um, their brands are pretty, you know, set in stone, I think. Yeah. <laughs> so it's. It, <laughs> I keep hearing some nervous Democrats. Well, Biden's got to get out there. More people have to hear from him more. Have to know, you know, tell more about him. And it's like, you know, if you don't know, I mean, he was vice president for eight years. Come on. You know, that's why one of the reasons he won the nomination. The brand is set. And, and that's another reason why the Republicans and Trump are having trouble uh, getting Americans to believe that Biden is some wide eyed socialist, you know, because everyone knows him as a as a typical Democrat, almost a little bit moderate, whatever, um, which is part of his appeal as a candidate. Yeah, absolutely. 
So another big news story this week, in fact, a, a really huge one, at least in the kind of media echo chamber, has been some excerpts that were released from the new Bob Woodward book. Um, now, uh, this is not a, a, a kind of investigative secret subterfuge type of type of book. Um, Trump went on the record for Woodward's book and they were interviewed 18 times. He also spoke to Jared Kushner and many others in the Trump circle, both current and former. Um, and I think some of the big news that's come out of that has been um, Trump is on the record on audio tape, which has been released back in February, um, both saying that the virus is more deadly than the flu, is very serious at a time when he was underplaying the seriousness of the virus, and also admitting in March that he's um, deliberately underplaying um, the virus as a concern because, quote unquote, he doesn't want to panic people. He actually says, I wanted to always play it down. I still like playing it down because I don't want to create a panic. Um, Roger, do you think Donald Trump is deeply concerned about panicking the United States, the, the, the people of the United States? You mean the guy who screams there's a caravan coming and uh, uh, <laughs> look out for those your lives? Yeah, exactly. The one that says if Biden is elected, all the riots are going to come to a, 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 a town near you and um, there'll be, you know, socialism and the whole country's going to fall apart. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, it's 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 hard to keep up. It has been hard to keep up for a long time with all the stuff uh, that Trump does and says and how, you know, any, as, as has been said repetitively, if any other candidate had done or said any of this stuff, they'd be toast. Um, so yeah, there's a cynicism that sets in and you go, well, you know, is this Woodward book going to mean anything? Is it going to move anybody? I mean, you know, his voters are pretty, um, entrenched, but you know, there are soft Republicans, soft Trump voters, and, um, you know, a lot of them held their nose and voted for him uh, either because they didn't like Hillary or at the last minute they sort of uh, thought, well, I'll take a chance. He, he couldn't be this bad when he gets in office. He'll take the presidency seriously, et cetera. So we've seen a lot of those people peel away in groups like um, Republican voters against Trump and Republicans for Biden and all that. And those numbers seem to be growing. Um, and so I feel like every little bit helps a little bit, you know, Woodward's thing, it just, I mean, just reinforces uh, what the majority of the country believes about how Trump handled the pandemic. So in that sense, it's it's great. And as even one of his campaign people said, I read a quote today, every day that we're talking about this uh, yeah. is a day we're not defining Joe Biden, we're not on the offensive. Uh, so, you know, bring it on, Bob Woodward, I say. <laughs> uh, but it, it, is, it is this huge vulnerability, because the pandemic was something that you know, some of these Trump scandals were like, OK, he paid off Stormy Daniels. That doesn't really affect any any American uh, directly their lives um, or even the even what he was impeached for. You know, he's trying to get some dirt on Biden. Some people can pass that off as, you know, politics and politics mm -hmm. is dirty and all that stuff. But this was this was, you know, something that affected American lives. And he proved he was unfit to handle it. And uh, Woodward's book just reinforces that he already has negative numbers and it gives the Democrats an opportunity to focus in on the pandemic once again and hammer him with it. 
I think I think your point about every day that we spend talking about this is is is, is a day lost for the Trump campaign is is really valid, and I think one of the reasons why it's important is that the definition of a swing voter. You talk about a lot about soft Republicans. There are a lot of people who voted for Donald Trump and didn't like him very much, but by definition, most swing voters are people who don't actually pay that much attention to politics. Um, you know, it's not the people who are really wired in tend to be hyper partisan. They quickly they decide on a side and they kind of quickly commit to it. Swing voters are not paying a lot of attention. So for them, the presidential election might be something they're just starting to tune into now. They might not deliberately, perhaps they find Trump annoying and they just don't want to be paying attention to it. They might not have spent a lot of time thinking about their choice if they're a swing voter. So I think, you know, after Labor Day starts to be when people say that stories can start to really affect the election. So we are in a, a phase now within, you know, we're within two weeks of elect two months, not not two weeks. <laughs> God, God only, if only. <laughs> um, we're, two, we're within two months of election day. I think we're starting to get into an arena where every story starts to pick up more and more voters who are switching on for the first time. So maybe maybe that actually matters more than it might have a week or two weeks ago or before the conventions. Yeah, I have a little theory about that whole because um, that is the conventional wisdom that, you know, the sort of the casual swing voter, the low info voters only start paying attention after Labor Day. That's been a long held belief. I have a little theory that in this day and age, um, because we have so much access to information 24 seven on on the Web, on social media, on cable television, all that, I feel like. Um, either if you don't pay attention, if you're not someone who knows it now, you probably won't know even after Labor Day. You just you mm -hmm. obviously don't care because like you would have to just hide in a cave not to <laughs> not to know all this stuff. Right. I, I don't mean hide in a cave. People are, do, are, are busy with their lives and all right. that. Um, so my point being, I'm not sure that um, it's the same as it used to be. Like, I think the low info voters remain low info voters like this is yeah. idea that you said hey after labor day suddenly they they perk up and they follow everything now nah, i think it's still and the low info voters are low info voters so yeah and i've heard like i had sarah longwell on my podcast she's the co-founder of republican voters against trump right. she's been doing focus groups since trump was elected talking to republicans consistently <clears throat> i don't know if it's weekly or monthly but getting a regular pulse on some of these voters and she said Quite a number of them are kind of what what you said earlier, where they <clears throat> they either sort of turned it off or they just were going about their lives, whatever. They weren't paying that much attention to him. They weren't following every tweet, and they weren't. And suddenly, when the pandemic hit, of course, they were home. They started watching their local news a little more, started you know really paying attention, and saw this guy's this guy's crazy. You know, he's not fit to be leading the response to this. And um, so yeah, it just plays into more of that. I think uh, whatever little. Uh, things low info voters pick up. I think they have their general impression of, yeah, Trump's a bit, you know, a bit wacky, but and then they maybe they catch like, oh, he actually said I like to play down the pandemic. Those little headlines will help um, yeah. with some of these with some of these voters for sure. I think. Yeah, and it may not be any more than a headline, but the headline might be enough. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. So one other story that I thought was interesting this week that I wanted to touch in on was um, a story that I saw. I think this was in fact an NBC News story. Um, which was looking at Trump's preparations for the forthcoming debates. Now, um, they're not that far off, believe it or not. Um, I was I was sort of startled myself when I realized the first debate is the 29th of September, which is only a few weeks away. Right. Um, and apparently Trump has 
has been refusing to do any formal debate preparation. Um, that is to say, you know, we're used to a situation. You remember the the, the Kerry Kerry Bush debate uh, election cycle we were talking about earlier, where um, you know somebody would play the role of Bush and Kerry would would go opposite them. Um, in the last election cycle, I understand Chris Christie filled in for uh, Hillary Clinton in Trump's de Trump's mock debate sessions, which is something I find hard to imagine. Yeah, there's a visual. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> doesn't seem like great casting to me, but there you go. Um, but but Trump has decided that he doesn't want to do any of that um, and is not doing formal debate trap. He says he just says that he feels like he's been preparing for debates all his life. Um, Roger, is this just overconfidence? Is it hubris or are the Trump campaign trying to misdirect us? Because it seems like not a great approach to me. <laughs> I feel like I, I was actually surprised to read that thing, too, that, that Christie played Hillary, not just for the visual and the, the casting, as you said, but also I, I, I swear we we heard stories like this in 2016, too, where Trump wasn't doing his proper debate prep and all that stuff. So I didn't even know they did any mock debates. But of course, I don't know how why anyone would be surprised because Trump doesn't prepare for anything. Uh, he certainly didn't prepare for the presidency. He never prepares for um, you know, he's he barely knows anything about policy, even after five years of being in politics and being president. He's unable to articulate even the, the simplest of of, uh, of policies. Um, so I'm not surprised he's going to wing it or whatever, because he's clearly lazy and um, unprepared for virtually anything. Uh, but of course, in his mind and, you know, unfortunately, uh, he has a reason to think this. Uh, it, it, it seems to work for him. I mean, he, he does these rallies and sometimes he reads prepared text, but he he does better when he doesn't, I think, you know, objectively looking at it. And um, he is not the type of person walking around with a binder. And, um, you know, so, uh, you know, hey, I, I, I believe the story to be true. I believe he's taking that approach. Uh, I, I can believe that since he got elected once, he's probably um, a little overconfident. Um, I, I, there's a part of me, though, that feels like um, I know a lot of people on our side of the aisle are really afraid that Trump won't leave office and all of that, all the whatever can happen between Election Day and Inauguration Day. I'm actually one. Uh, I have a bit of a, a counter to that. I, I'm actually someone who thinks Trump, part of him, can't wait to get, to leave office. Like if there was a way he could leave with, uh, you know, by oh, still saving face, yeah, yeah. or you know, without losing in the traditional sense, he would do it. Like I think he's anxious to get back to his old life. I think he wants to start Trump TV and do deals again and have his life back. Um, now, of course, he wants to win because he's Trump, but. Uh, so there's a part of me that thinks, well, the guy probably doesn't care as much as people think, um, other than just that, oh, I don't want to be a loser, quote unquote. Um, so I'm not surprised by any of it. Uh, he, you know, I, I think it's funny when I hear people say, oh, you know, Trump's going to crush Biden at the de debates. Like by what? Calling him a sophomoric mm -hmm. nickname? Like he, Trump can't yeah. talk policy for 30 seconds, so he'll just try to drag Biden into the mud. He'll scream insults. Whatever's going to happen. Um, I, I'm I'm really dreading the debates. I used to look forward to them, um, but you know I I just think it's going to be uh, it's not going to be um, you know quality yeah. intellectual entertainment. You know? Yeah, I'm um, I'm interested. I want to pick up on that point because I think your point about Trump Trump would love to not be president anymore. 
I think that's true. I think from the day he was elected, he's like, oh, do I really have to do this? It's hard work. <laughs> yeah. Um, my only thing to that, though, is I would say, and this is, you know, it's going to sound really conspiratorial, but just bear with me for a second. We know for a fact that there are a number of criminal investigations against Trump and the Trump organizations that are in place. Um, you know, the the uh, Manhattan District Attorney Cy Vance has, um, you know, it's he's been it's been pretty obvious. It's come out in some Supreme Court ruling. Uh, recently that he's um, he's getting records from Trump's Trump's accountants. There are various other kind of criminal prosecutions, personal prosecutions, not just again, possibly potentially directed against his organization, but potentially against himself. Um, and and the he cannot be prosecuted for those things as long as he remains president. And should he be reelected, um, bear with me for a second. The statute of limitations on most of these things would run out while he was president. So, I, I think that might change the dynamic in his mind a little bit. You know, whether he whether he believes that's going to happen to him or not, there might be some sense of I'm fighting for my life here because actually, if I'm not reelected, I might be on trial pretty soon. Does that sound <laughs> too conspiratorial? Oh, oh, fair enough. I, I certainly understand that that perspective. I have one counter to that as well. Um, okay. In that, you know. Trump, there hasn't been a time in Trump's life, maybe not at this level, these serious stakes or whatever, but there hasn't been a time when Trump hasn't been fighting something, hasn't been in some lawsuit or several lawsuits or being investigated or whatever. And I feel like he's, the message he's gotten from the world is that he always gets away with things. Yeah. Um, and he, you know, he's clearly to the point where he's, you know, delusional. Well, we, we can never know what he truly believes in. No one's inside his head. Um, but he does appear to think, uh, he, you know, he hasn't done anything wrong or he's, uh, you know, he's going to get away with it or, you know, he'll be able to fight it. He sues, you know, all his entire life. He's just been litigious, you know, suing everyone. Um, so I, there's a part of me that thinks he doesn't really believe that, you know, these investigations are going to go anywhere or that he won't be able to fight them or or whatever. I mean, he's been able to go this long without releasing his taxes, for example. Um, so I, I think he just I don't know that he looks at it in a rational way, the way that we do and go, look, this guy, if he's not president, he's going to get arrested or charged with something. Or yeah. He just thinks, no, I'm not. I'm, I'm going to keep doing what I'm doing and I'll fight them and I'll sue them. And um, so I'm not sure that he's thinking about it in that kind of rational, linear way. That's my counter to that. But I do, I do understand your point, and um, there may be days where he says, "Yeah, I've got to stay president, <laughs> stay out of jail." I don't know. The other thing, though, like he does seem really cowardly to me. I think he's physically cowardly. You know, he's very concerned for his own personal well-being, and I think he would probably, you know, I think you're right that he probably doesn't necessarily believe he's in believe that he genuinely will be held to account for anything ever because he never has been but he also you know he doesn't like ramps you know i mean this is a guy who's very concerned for his own personal safety so um i think you know a criminal prosecution for him would be would be perceived psychologically um you know to psychoanalyze someone i've never met and never hoped to meet um <laughs> i think a criminal prosecution directed to him would he would feel very differently about that the prospect of actually going to prison compared to a, a lawsuit or something directed against his business. But that's, you know, the, I, I think all the points you make are also valid. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, I mean, you're right. I mean, I, I'm sure there are days when he he is more afraid than others and, and all of that. Um, you know, again, we're we're also speculating on what 
evidence they have and what the yeah. charges would be and all of that. Um, he seems to have done a fairly clever job over the years of somehow um, keeping himself out of the direct, you know, line of fire, whatever, whether it's Co Michael Cohen or someone else taking the, yeah. the fall for him or his fingerprints not being on things. And yeah. so, you know, it's hard to speculate even what yeah. the charges are really going to be and all of that. So, yeah. you know, I guess we'll have there to wait. Like any good mob boss, he keeps his hands clean. Exactly. <laughs> Literally. Right. Um, so, Roger, if you've got a few, for a few more minutes, shall we stick around and play the gut check game? Absolutely. I would I would be disappointed if we, we ended without playing the gut check game. Got to so. play the gut, gut check game. So for those of you who are new to the podcast, I have in front of me some bits of paper, um, which I've put in my trusty Red Sox baseball cap. I'm going to pull them out of the cap and just read them out and we will respond to them. So the first one here. Um, okay, the first one I've got is actually three names that were on tr the Trump campaign's published shortlist of possible Supreme Court justices should Trump be reelected. And those names are Tom Cotton, Senator for Arkansas, Ted Cruz, Senator for Texas, and Josh Hawley for Missouri. How mm. do we feel about these names? <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, the most Republican partisans. Wasn't, was it uh, Hawley who said he didn't, wouldn't even want to be considered? I think he had a comment right away or something. I can't remember. Yeah, I think I wasn't Hawley. It was, I think it might have been Hawley who said he didn't even want it. And then Tom Cotton immediately responded, Roe v. Wade must be overturned. I was like, okay, so you do <laughs> want it, to be clear. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. I mean, you know, it's funny. Um, all three of them. Well, I mean, Ted Cruz already ran for president, but all three of them are uh, usually presented as, um, you know, there's this fear that is someone who ran like Trump, but in a more competent, smoother way might uh, be very dangerous. But Trump is such an anomaly um, and it's his fame and his decades of being in the limelight and all of that that's set up his successful run. I just don't think anyone can replicate that. And when I see someone like Tom Cotton talk for five minutes, I'm like, you're is, people are worried about this guy. Like it, the, it, none of these people can be Trump because they don't have his celebrity. They don't have, you know, that that combination that makes Trump Trump. Uh, so I, I know we're talking about the Supreme Court, but I think of these three as as presidential candidates too coming in, you know, in yeah. 2024, they're all um, and I, I, I don't see them yet being a uh, on the Supreme Court or in the Oval Office. I mean, I'm really struck by the fact that that Trump is just openly deciding that we are live in a world now where we just put politicians on the Supreme Court. You know, this I, I, as with all other things, there's this, you know, there's this facade of niceties we've always had in D.C. life. Right. Which is like we pretend the court is nonpartisan and we pretend that like, you know, you know, Mitch McConnell before Mitch McConnell, we used to pretend that we cared about kind of bipartisan committee in the Senate. And Mitch McConnell's just like, no, we don't care about that. Um, and this is just another example of like, we're not going to pretend the Supreme Court is nonpartisan. We're just going to openly pluck a Republican right wing senator from the right wing of the party and place them straight onto the court like that's it's just like let's forget all the platitudes and and facades that we used to put up and let's just admit that we are craven that's a good point and and now we're not even you know at least in these suggestions we're not even putting forth people who at least were qualified i mean whatever you thought about yeah. anton scalia you know the guy was qualified Respected to be a jurist yeah, yeah or, or even gorsuch you know um yeah. uh but yeah now it's just 
you know, like everything with Trump, it, the, the, as you say, the facade is off and, it, and it's just like he's a parody of even the biggest caricatures that that Democrats often said about Republicans. Trump just yeah. lives it. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. He uh, he he is the caricature of he is what people think rotten politicians are like. He is yeah. the he, he is what people what cynics and 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 conspiracy theorists think politicians are. Um, which is, you know, completely, completely transactional, completely corrupt, completely venal. So that's fun. Speaking of which, I've got another piece of paper here. This is a statement from the U.S. Justice Justice Department moving to take over Trump's defense on an allegation, uh, a defamation case related to a rape allegation brought by uh, the columnist E. Jean Carroll. It says, quote, President Trump was acting within the scope of his office as president of the United States at the time of the incidents out of which the plaintiff's defamation claim arose. So the Justice Department will now be ta- is now trying to take over that case um, and have Trump defended by taxpayer lawyers. Oh, yeah. Well, again, this is that is a perfect segue um, from what we were just talking about, because, uh, you know, we've gone from. Uh, again, the caricature, like now, you know, Clinton, uh, oh, you know, maybe he shouldn't, maybe it was an inappropriate relationship with Miss Lewinsky and, and, uh, um, and, you know, there's that line between, or when he met with Loretta Lynch on the tarmac and Hillary Clinton under investigation. And now it's just, Trump just explodes it. Like, oh, actually, you know, this woman accused me of rape and I think I'm going to get taxpayers to, to, to pay for my defense. I mean, you know, as, as the the popular game goes, if Obama or if Clinton had done it, you know, can you imagine um, if Bill Clinton had asked the taxpayers to, you know, pay for a defense of? I mean, Bill Clinton is a perfect example, right? Because he did have serious allegations against him during his presidency, yeah. and at no point did it would would anyone have ever suggested that Justice Department Department lawyers should take over his defense in the Paula Jones case like that's just insane like can you imagine how many heads would have exploded Republican heads but Democratic heads like nobody would have let that happen oh it is and now I feel like and you know it's um in a weird way I've thought about this before Trump has uh, has brought some good to the country, and I, you know, I say this in a, uh, you know, good and in, in, excellent, uh, in quotes, um, like some of these things are now just like we had to listen for decades to the Christian right lecture us on family values and character matters, and especially when it comes to the presidency and all that. So we're done with that now. That that's out the window, right? And now here, here's another example where okay, um, you know the charges against Clinton and what all the all that character stuff, all that stuff that they might have had some high ground on at the time is all gone. We don't we can dismiss with this. Uh, and apparently, you know, maybe it's good in a way that we don't have to have these impossibly high standards for uh, the personal lives of uh, some of these politicians. I mean, I'm not I'm not uh, I'm just saying like, OK, someone who's been married more than once. OK, someone maybe who uh, cheated on their spouse, maybe maybe we can stop making that a, a make or break thing. I'm not talking about anything that's actually in the yeah. realm of sexual assault or anything, obviously, but I, I'm just saying some of that stuff goes by the wayside now and uh, we can see some of these leaders more as human beings. Again, I'm not saying Trump has done a lot of things mm-hmm. that are you know, poss- possible felonies, I, but I'm just talking about that general overview of um, expecting the choir boy or girl 
to be our president, you know. Did you know what? I think it's actually really fascinating because it's very hard to find any evidence that voters actually mind sexual impropriety on the part of a presidential candidate, right? Mm -hmm. Bill Clinton was the first to kind of just be out there and be like, look, this is none of your business. I'm not going to deny it. It's just, you know, when he was running, Hillary Clinton came out, stood behind him and said, look, this is, you know, this is about our marriage. It's our relationship, you know. You know, vote for him, don't vote for him. It's up to you. And people voted for him, you know, and Clinton and, and with with Trump, you know, I mean, he has serious allegations of rape and sexual assault, which are in another category. But yeah. Stormy Daniels, I mean, here he is out there pretty transparently having an affair with a porn star. Right. Who he then pays all like it's just as disgusting. Right. Yeah. I can't find any votes that he lost. Like, I can't find anybody who used to like him and now doesn't like him because of that. People don't seem to care. Well, especially on the evangelical side, which, you know, is what I was talking about before, where I guess we won't hear any lectures from from you folks anymore. Um, yeah, no, exactly. And I mean, some of that is is fine. I mean, again, Trump is a parody of everything that was supposedly said about the Clintons. And this is an example. Bill has might have had these affairs, might have done something inappropriate with an intern. Ah, Trump had an affair with a porn star while his wife was nursing their newborn and he paid her off. You know, like it's just, <laughs> it's kind of, like it would be and, and that kind of stuff is sort of. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, what? I know. You couldn't script it. What is, couldn't script what it. is this world? Yeah. <laughs> Um, speaking of Trump, as we were, um, here's something that he had to say about um, VP nominee Kamala Harris, quote, people don't like her. Nobody likes her. She could never be the first woman president. She could never be. That would be an insult to our country. Yeah, well, again, I mean, I, I think uh, the uh, the misogyny playbook is uh pretty transparent by now, you know, I mean, it was one thing to talk about Hillary Clinton, who a lot of people had mixed feelings about and who, you know, had done some things that uh, objectively people could criticize. Um, but, you know, I'm not aware of anything that, you know, Kamala is, you know, <laughs> there's no, I, I don't know what he's talking about, really, like objectively. Like, uh, like literally, what are you talking about? There's just, yeah. there's nothing that like people don't like her she actually has the highest approval rating of all four people who are running on either ticket right like yeah. she's she's the only person with a net favorable rating of any for of any of the four candidates obviously way higher than trump yeah yeah do like her literally that's that's one of the things about her well you know what and it it's an interesting thing because they uh they're going there to try to you know paint her as unlikable and probably to the left of Biden and, you know, trying to do that tie into Biden is just going to be a puppet for the socialist agenda and all that. But it is an interesting, uh, and this has happened a couple of times in the campaign where basically they, they've admitted Biden is just too likable uh, and well-regarded by the majority of the country. They just, they don't have anything on him. They, they can't knock down his favorable numbers. They, they try to say, oh, he's too old and, you know, senile and all of that stuff. But um, or, you know, Biden was moderate, but now he's being pulled, as I said, to the left and all this. They're acknowledging, hey, you know, actually, he's kind of a likable, reasonable guy. And and so I think that's part of this. They don't have anything on Biden. Uh, they can't they're not going to be able to bring his favorability down to anywhere near the Hillary Clinton level or anything like that. So they're 
they're trying to get something going with Kamala. And of course, again, the misogyny of, well, it's a woman, we can probably um, put some doubt in some some voters' minds or something. Uh, you know, it's, it's all sort of desperate in yeah. my view. Yeah, it, it's desperate and pathetic. And, and also like, I mean, God bless her. Kamala Harris is a tough lady. <laughs> like she, she can take it. Yeah, I, and I'm sure she knew it was coming. Um, but there is a part of me as a woman. I do always look at women in politics and think, I wish that they didn't have to know that this is the gauntlet they'd have to be going through when they get in, when they get in. Um, yeah. Because there is so much shit that gets thrown in at, at women in public eye, especially in the moment of them seeking power. And this was the thing with Hillary Clinton, right? Her favorable ratings were always pretty high when she was doing a job, when she was in yeah. service. But when she was seeking power, her, her ratings always went down. And I just thought, we don't like it when women think they deserve power. <laughs> yeah. No, I know. It's, it's, um, uh, I keep thinking about, you know, which women uh on either side well uh, could run and you know keep their favorability rating high i mean we'll you know we'll see what happens to kamala if she ends up um as vice president and then you know i i'm pretty sure that biden will only serve one term uh he seems to be acknowledging that he's a you know transitional candidate and he's there to kind of pass the torch and just clean up trump's mess get things back to normal as soon as possible that sort of thing so we'll see what happens to her. Um, <clears throat> certainly Republicans love the women on their side. That Then there's no misogyny, you know, whether it's Sarah Palin or Nikki Haley or whoever. Um, they're, uh, so it's not that they're totally against any women. Uh, <laughs> but Well, anyway. but then they go into this, like, she's a hot babe thing, right? There's like, with Sarah Palin, there was this nasty undercurrent of, like, Republican chicks are hot. You right. know, there was this. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? There's this kind of. They can't just deal with them as a as a person and a politician and as a candidate. They have to like sexualize them in some way or make them unlikable figures. Like it just. Yeah. Oh, yeah, that's the playbook for sure. And you know, um, you know that's that's why uh, women voters have been turned off uh, of the entire party, and they're losing them. Um, you know, particularly suburban women because they can't stand it, uh, exactly what you were talking about. Um, and so I guess we can thank them as Democrats uh, <laughs> for pushing more voters our way. <laughs> Thanks for the women. Yeah, exactly. Thank you for sending us all the women. We will take <laughs> them and we will treat them with respect. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so listen, Roger, it's been, it's been great talking to you. You said at the beginning, maybe I wouldn't think it was a delight at the end, but I still do. <laughs> Delightful to talk to you. Smoke and mirrors. I fooled you. Uh, no, thanks for having me on the podcast. I appreciate all the work you're doing and the dedication to getting something out every week and keeping people informed and engaged and, and all of that. So um, I appreciate uh, the conversation. Uh, no problem. I'm thrilled to do it, uh, especially when I get to talk to such interesting people. So the podcast, uh, your podcast is Clusterfucked. I enjoy saying that. <laughs> and where can people find that? <laughs> oh, uh, yeah. So go to cfthepodcast.com and uh, we have all the episodes there and there's more information about the podcast. And of course, like yours, I assume, you know, people can find uh, Clusterfucked on iTunes and Spotify and Stitcher and Google Play and all those podcatchers, they call them. I love that term, podcatchers. But yeah, exactly. But, you know, I like it when people visit the website, cfthepodcast.com. And, and I'm on Twitter. I mentioned my handle is the civil liberal, but um, the actual uh, well, I guess that's my moniker, but the actual handle is at CF the podcast. 
Fantastic. So everybody go go check it out. And uh, I certainly I certainly always enjoy checking out the podcast. And it's been great to talk to you. And that's it. As always, you can reach me on Twitter. I'm at Karen JR on Twitter. Um, and look, guys, it's the middle of September. It's the 11th of September. We're less than two months away from election day. And if you haven't yet received your ballot um, or even requested your ballot, let's let's hop on that straight away. If you're an American listening to the sound of my voice, it's not too late. If you um, believe that you're registered and you're waiting to get your ballot, it's not too late to just check in on that. Um, make sure that you uh, are properly registered. Most states will allow you to look online and do that. If you are an American abroad, you can start submitting what's called a federal write-in absentee ballot, especially if you're concerned about the Postal Service. A write-in absentee ballot um, is a fail-safe ballot in case your regular ballot does not arrive. Um, you can go to votefromabroad.org. You can fill out that form, send it back. You need to write in the name of the candidate that you're supporting. If you then receive your state ballot in time, go ahead and vote that. Your write-in ballot will then be discarded by your state. The write-in ballot is meant as a backup fail-safe for people um, in the situation, which is unfortunately um, all too common and all too worrying in this election cycle that possibly your ballot might not arrive in time. So it's not too late, not too soon to start doing that. Um, so votefromabroad.org is the website that can help you out with that. Or if you're an American back in the US, go to vote.org for voting information and they can sort you out. I should let you know, as always, that this podcast is not affiliated with any other organization or entity. It is just me, and I wish you a very happy week. Mm-hmm.